Welcome to the West Virginia Writers Podcast, a service of West Virginia Writers Incorporated, the Mountain State's largest all-volunteer nonprofit organization dedicated to writers. Established and incorporated in 1977, West Virginia Writers continues to support writers in writing statewide through program sponsorship, an annual writing contest, and an annual summer writers conference. This podcast is dedicated to promoting the organization, its members, and events, as well as writers throughout Appalachia and beyond. And now, broadcasting from atop a hill in Mercer County, here is your host, Eric Fritzhughes. Thank you, Gertrude, and hola, listeners. Welcome to Episode 46 of the West Virginia Writers Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Fritzhughes. Well, just in time for the holiday season, this week's podcast is a recorded live reading of a holiday-centric literary event recorded back on November 5th at the Zen Clay Gallery in Morgantown. The featured readers of the event are Diane Tarantini and Ted Webb. Diane is a member of West Virginia Writers, and if you were at the 2010 Summer Conference this year, you might have seen her read as part of the West Virginia Writers Home Companion evening. Ted Webb is a co-founder of the group Morgantown Poets. He's not been on the podcast before himself, but was mentioned back when I interviewed fellow Morgantown Poets member Tamara Woods in July. Normally, I'd add more of an introduction for these two, but the MC of this reading, West Virginia writer's own Jessica Murphy, does a splendid job of it already. So for your holiday enjoyment, we turn things now over to Jessica, Diane, and Ted. I'd like to welcome you all to this special pre-holiday literary event at Zen Clay. We'd like to thank Zen Clay for giving us this space to do the reading in. Uh, if you get hungry or thirsty, uh, there, Zen Clay offers drinks as well as menu items like soups and sandwiches, so you can get up and go downstairs at any time during this reading. Uh, at this time, we ask that everyone please turn off your cell phones or turn them on silent. Our event this evening features Diane Tarantini and Ted Webb. In the spirit of Thanksgiving and the holiday season, these Morgantown authors will express their unique ways of looking at the world. So get ready for a dynamic, thought-provoking journey into the mind and heart. Be sure to save your questions for the meet and greet with the authors and the book signing, both of which will take place after the reading. Our first author this evening will be Diane Tarantini. Uh, Diane won four awards at the 2010 West Virginia Writers Annual Conference in No, Italy. that was Corey. <laughs> <laughs> Her writing placed in humor, inspirational, book-length prose, and people's choice. Her manuscript for her debut novel, Confessions of a Life Half-Lived, is currently with an editor. Also, her blog is www.cottbutterflies.blogspot.com. According to West Virginia writers, President Emeritus Terry McNemer, Diane has an approach that is so congenial and unassuming that before you know it, she's woven one of her vignettes around you. It's really kind of rare and magical. West Virginia author and editor Jeffrey Cameron Fuller notes that the freshness of Diane's narrative voice, its whimsical tone, belies the grittiness of her subject matter. She crafts layered and often secret worlds with a light, deft touch. Diane, a native of Huntington, graduated from West Virginia University's Perry Isaac Reed School of Journalism. She's been a food panelist for the Dominion Post and currently writes for West Virginia writers. Please welcome Diane Tarantini. Is your friend running? Yes. I'm going to put this down because I'm short and it's heavier. Objects may be heavier than they appear. Um, thank you all for coming. I, I am sure Ted also feels the same. We appreciate your love of the spoken and written word. Um, I don't know which is uh, 
more fun reading it or writing it. Um, I'm going to say just a couple things. Deb and I were speaking before um, a little earlier. A lot of what I write specifically on my blog is flash memoir and, and sometimes flash fiction. It's, it's usually a piece that's a thousand words or less. And if it's flash memoir, it's a memory. And if it's flash fiction, it's not real. Unfortunately, my husband often says, is it real or is it not? Because usually real life can be better than fiction, but sometimes fiction is better than real life. So um, I'm usually about 90% real and 10% embellishment like jewelry. Um, And the second thing you need to know about me is really and truly, I am a simple woman writing simply. If you want smoke and mirrors and lots of jazz and pizzazz and humongous vocabulary words, I am not your woman. Um, So with that said, I'm going to get started on my playlist. Since we build this as pre-holiday, hello Candace, I'm meeting you in person, this is awesome. We talk on Facebook all the time and this is the first time it's, it's, it's in person. Thank you for coming. Um, so I put my pieces together to, to be in some way or another holiday related. And so this first piece is Flash Memoir. And it's kind of an over the river and through the woods to grandmother's house we go story. I grew up in Huntington, and this is a story about going to visit my grandfolks in Charleston. And it's called, Are We There Yet? It always took forever and a day to get to granny and granddad. Know why? Because my dad drove so daggone slow. Do you have any idea how long it takes to get the 45 minutes between Huntington and Charleston when you drive 45 minutes 45 miles an hour. Darn tootin' it takes an hour. And that's if no one got car sick. Whenever that happened, we always had to pull over and let whoever barf in the designated coffee can. My three older brothers and I tried to make the time go faster. We'd play the alphabet game or bury the cows. But it didn't help much. Even though the big green stink bridge outside of St. Albans smelled worse than the container of ham salad my brothers tried to make into catfish bait, We were always glad to see it. Won't be long now. Granny and Granddad lived on Swarthmore Avenue in Charleston. The turn into their driveway was tight. I always closed my eyes and waited for the scrunch of Buick Skylark bumper on metal fence post. Miraculously, it never came. When I opened my eyes, there was Tara, or what I imagined Tara looked like before I saw the movie. If you looked at the house from the driveway, it was pretty ordinary, just a a large brick cake cod. But if you walked around to the front, it did a presto change-o into a mansion. Thanks to the semicircular appendage that was more veranda than porch, what made it truly grand, though, was the presence of four white columns that supported the porch roof. I'd hang on to the column and do a skippy dance around it, like half an X. Someone would always shout, last one in is a rotten egg. Twenty seconds later, we'd be inside the house, lined up like the Bond Trap kids for granny kisses. Go see your granddad, she'd say as she swatted each of us on the behind. Granddad was usually in a suit, and most times we found him in the living room reading the Charleston Gazette. He'd pound each boy on the back and say, how much do you weigh, son? (laughs) We spent many an hour speculating as to why he always asked us that. 
Then he'd pull me onto his lap. My feet would dangle over his shiny wingtips as he scraped his face against mine. I don't think he shaved on Sundays. His face always felt like 80 grit sandpaper. I remember his breath the most because it's what I dreaded the most. If I had to say which smelled worse, the sink bridge or granddad's breath, I don't know if I could. I've smelled that odor a couple of times since. It's a cross between unflossed teeth and coffee breath. The only thing that could have made it worse is if he licked an ashtray or ate a chili cheese dog with onions. I've always been a faithful flosser, thanks to granddad. On the other end of the smell spectrum was Granny's rump roast. It was to drool for. When I heard the oven timer buzz, I'd hightail it into the kitchen. If she was in a good mood, she'd give me the roast beef strings to chew on. Granny always carried the roast platter into the gymnasium-sized dining room with much pomp and circumstance. She was a very good cook, and she knew it. We'd eat off delicate, white, with gold-trimmed plates, even if it wasn't a holiday. My brothers and I would make mashed potato dams and flood them with granny gravy that was more au jus than gravy. The boys and I would woof down first, seconds, and thirds as fast as possible in order to get to the best place ever, the attic. The attic was the best place ever because my grandparents lived through the Great Depression. When you live through a depression, you save stuff. There were hundreds of books up there. I like to sit on the old brass bed under the quilt and read the first pages of as many books as possible. I wanted to see if any of them were interesting. They never were. I mean, what story in a super old book could be as interesting as the adventures of Nancy Drew or Alec Ramsey in his big black stallion? The boys would root through scads of military uniforms and paraphernalia. My daddy had four brothers, so there was lots of both. I'm pretty sure my brothers were looking for guns. Boys like guns. My brother John could make the best machine gun noise ever. <laughs> Say that super fast, holding your mouth like you're getting ready to blow a bubble. I don't know why, but it always sounds better when it comes from a boy mouth. When my brothers weren't around, I'd hold Granny's evening dresses in front of me and look at the big, giant mirror tilted against the wall. I'd rub my cheek against the satin lapel of Granddad's tuxedo and inhale the sharp scent of mothballs. They must be pretty important to wear these super nice clothes. One time I asked Granny about her fancy dresses. You can't look like a tramp when you go to the Greenbrier, you know. <laughs> she told me that as she gave her hair a hundred brush strokes. I nodded like I understood. One time I found four unopened boxes under the brass bed in the attic. It's probably beans, one of my brothers said. They ate a lot of beans during the Depression. I found a pearl-handled knife and sawed through the stringy packing tape. All four boxes were full of Estee Lauder, beauty cream. My brothers couldn't believe it. I was sure it would be food, my brother, one brother said. I knew why it wasn't food. Granny stockpiled beauty cream in case Mrs. Lauder stopped making it. Granny loved her country, but she didn't want to stop being pretty on account of the war. It always made me sad when Mom or Dad called us downstairs. Sometimes they wanted us to come down for a bowl of Valley Bell ice cream, but more often than not, they said, Time to go. Sadder still was a day 20 days later when Dad called me. I lived in Cincinnati, Ohio at the time. 
They've got a dumpster pulled up to Granny's house. They're throwing away everything but furniture, china, and silver. I sagged when he said that. Gosh, Dad, why didn't you tell me sooner? It's not like I live 45 minutes away, you know. The end of that one. (laughs) Okay. All right. Raise your hand if you're going somewhere for Thanksgiving that's not in Morgantown. 50 miles or more. Okay. All right. One thing about holidays, they often um, involve homecoming. And in order to go to come home, you have to leave home. I know that's a duh, isn't it? Um, If you were to follow my blog, you would be aware of the fact that our oldest daughter is taking a gap year, a year between her senior year of high school and her freshman year of college. She's in Peru teaching English. And even though it was kind of, sort of, pretty much all my idea, when it actually happened, it tore me up. And so this piece is called Held, and it's about the day she went away. I almost lost it, my sanity, my togetherness, when the song came on. This is what it means to be held, how it feels when the sacred is torn from your life. I covered my mouth so she wouldn't hear the sound of my desperation. I pushed my sunglasses up, thankful for them. She was awake. She might be watching. I need super glue. I blinked back tears, because I'm falling apart. I focused on I-270. My brow furrowed. Is war like this? Where did that come from? But I knew. The trip to Reagan National Airport felt as if I was headed for certain death. Like Prince Caspian and the Narnians before the fighting trees showed up. Like Aragorn and King Theoden at Helm's Deep before Gandalf arrived with Aurorum. Like us before Jesus came. For a week, maybe two, I had a ritual. Let my eyes burn, allow a few tears to fall, then I stopped them. You can cry all you want the day after. Keep it together for now so she won't see. Don't soak her dream with your sorrow. I almost failed. Husband asleep, little guy reading. Our oldest daughter looked out the window. Then that dang song came on. The girl sang about the sacred being torn from your arms. The SUV swerved as I lost my grip on the steering wheel for a second. I eased the car back to the center of the lane, set my face like flint. At the airport, Daddy saved the day. He leaned over the counter. Her flight's been pushed back. She'll never make her connect. Can you put her on the one that's leaving in 20 minutes? It was accomplished. We sprinted to the escalator. (gasps) What if she gets stuck in security? My breath came in gas. What if her plane crashes? I put my hand under her backpack heavy with books. I tried to bear some of its weight so she wouldn't have to. We didn't get to pray for her one last time. I struggled to keep up. If she cries, I will lose it. I'm serious. Right here in front of all these people, I will lose it. At the turnstile she faced us, I felt as if I was breathing in a plastic bag. 
My eyes shone with unborn tears. This is it. I laid my hand on her hair, dug my fingers into the curly mass. Oh God, cover everything. Holy Spirit, pray anything. I don't know how to. And she was gone. She didn't look back. Did she not want to be Lot's wife? The next morning, I couldn't move. I felt almost bound. Like a thick blanket was on me, a weighty covering. It was warm, expensive. I don't know how I knew it was costly, but I did. I pulled my arms out and stroked the luxurious softness. Without looking, I could tell it was silvery aqua. I inhaled identified the fragrance as lilies and lemons. Then I knew what it was. It's peace and it's grace. I smiled and opened my eyes. That's when I remembered the rest of the song. This is what it means to be held. How it feels when the sacred is torn from your life and you survive. This next piece is actually a poem, and I don't write very many of them. Ted's the only one who's seen this. It'll be on my blog. I post every Friday on my blog. It'll be on the blog next Friday. It is a prayer poem because that seems to be about the only kind of poem I know how to write. And the title of it is, I Do, and it's pretty self-explanatory. I do. I do miss her. I do. I didn't at all. And then one morning, I did. Piercingly, achingly, in the marrow of my bones like flu. She's so lovely, within and without, and very far away. I can't be there in hours. I can count on my fingers. She's loving them right now. Surely, they love her too. You're welcome, God, because we gave her back to you. Like Hannah did Samuel with his little robes that got bigger each year. She's like Samuel, you know. Loves you, lives for you, follows you wherever. My heart is not like yours, God. It's finite. It's flesh. You always see her. I can't wait to. I'll attach myself to her like white hair on a black sweater. I'll twist a curl around my pointer finger. Tuck her in bed here. Listen to her laugh. Take in the tales of the life she lived among the glossy, among the golden children with glossy no moon night hair. I'll give her chocolate and snacks. Fix all her favorite dishes, sausage and biscuits, turkey and stuffing, Chinese chicken salad. Close my eyes and sing along as she plays Ode to Joy on her flute. I'll tell her she is wonderful. And that I, over and over, and that I want to be just like her when I grow up. I do.
is about Thanksgiving. And raise your hand if you've made out your Thanksgiving menu, if you're not going out to eat. Yes, you've made it out. And you like what didn't work last year, that's not happening again. And what did work, bring it back. And as I made my list, it brought to mind my epic fail of a Thanksgiving dinner last year. I don't know if I've told Sarah this or not. We were food panelists together, and Jackie's a superb cook. She's had published recipes. So you'll, you'll enjoy this. It's called In Search of Excellence. I stood up and faced the ten people gathered around our dining room table. Will you excuse me just one minute, please? <laughs> I ran upstairs and stuck my head in a laundry basket and screamed. <laughs> When I raised my head, I saw my husband's pant leg. Something wrong? I looked up from my crumple on the floor. It's not perfect! He shrugged. It doesn't have to be. It's excellent. That's enough. Last year, my Thanksgiving hoo-ha was a bit of a fiasco. I decided to be cool and brine my bird. Nowhere in the directions did Martha Stewart say that it would take the turkey three times longer to cook due to its 48-hour soak in salt water. (laughs) Thankfully, all the guests were polite about the very delayed entrance of the main course. We actually started out just fine. The wassail was perfect, all simmery and cinnamony in the crock pot that I'd wrapped with fall foliage paper. It made the house smell like it had one foot in November and the other foot in December. The appetizer buffet was stunning, if I do say so myself. I had to smack the kids' hands with a wooden spoon so they wouldn't spoil their appetite with shrimp butter on toasted baguette slices. My ma-in-law, that's Josephine to you all that know her, we vied for the biggest glutton title with the Bon Appetit, spiced pecans. My husband single-handedly polished off the roasted bell pepper and Havarti slices on fancy crackers. When I heard the oven timer ding, I clapped to get everyone's attention. And now for the main event, I said. Give me a few minutes to get the turkey out of the oven and we'll get this feast started for real. My husband hoisted the big tom turkey out of the oven and onto my granny's big cream ironstone platter while I got the side dishes squared away. Nutty green beans go in this bowl. Garlic mashed potatoes go in here. My sister-in-law's best ever. She won't give me the dang recipe. Sweet potatoes go in here. And my own stuff and concoction goes in our very special wedding anniversary bowl. I peeked over my husband's shoulder as he sliced into the bird's breast. He jumped when I squealed. (laughs) The juices are running clear. Stop! The package says the juices have to run clear. My husband looked from me to the bird. I handed him potholders. Quick! Put him back in! I increased the heat 25 degrees and slid the roasting pan all the way back in and left. And I put in all the side dishes around, hoping to keep them warm too. Then I smoothed the front of my cute aqua and lime anthropology apron, and I headed into the dining room. I had a bowl of cheddar pecan biscuits in one hand and a crystal bowl of soft, salted Amish butter in the other. Everyone get a biscuit and butter. It'll tide you over till the turkey's done. My husband checked the bird 30 minutes later. 
He stood in the dining room doorway and shook his head ever so slightly. <laughs> I choked on my biscuit bite. I wadded my pilgrim and Indian print napkin and dropped it on my empty plate. Here, let me take a look. My mother-in-law, Josephine to you, followed me into the kitchen. She touched me lightly on the shoulder. Why don't we start with the side dishes, she said. While the turkey finishes up, it'll be fine. I sighed. Okay. We took everything out of the oven and arranged the bowls on the kitchen table. I put a little calligraphy placard in front of each serving dish, and the guests filed in, loaded their plates, and returned to the dining room. My oldest brother blessed us, and we dove in. Thirty minutes later, my husband checked the turkey again. A little bit later, he checked it again. And then one more time, I took a swig of white wine. You know what? Just leave it in there till it's black for all I care. <laughs> my mother pointed her fork at me. Actually, this is good for my hiatal hernia. Small amounts of food throughout the day are better than one large meal. I tried to smile. Thanks, Mom! When we were done with our stuffing and veggies, I laid my plate on my husband's and stood. Forget about the turkey. I'll give everybody some to take home who's ready for dessert. There's praline pumpkin pie or frozen caramel pumpkin tort, both with homemade hazelnut whipped cream. I started the coffee and cut five pieces of each. Dollop them with whipped cream. My husband set a coffee cup on the table in front of me. I picked it up and started to take a drink, but stopped. I sniffed, wrinkled my nose. What's in it? It smells different. He grinned. A shot of Bailey's. <laughs> I thought you might need it. I felt my nostrils flare and my eyes start to burn. He patted my back. There, there. Think excellence, not perfection. I turned to face and my hands on my hips. This will not happen next year. He cringed. Does that mean we're eating out? <laughs> I snorted, heck no! I'm cooking the dang turkey the day before! <laughs> oh, that's fun. It's fun to make people laugh. Okay, raise your hand if you know a four-letter word that starts with S that some people like and some people don't that comes in wintertime. Oh. Raise your hand. Yes, ma'am. Snow. Yes. <laughs> Indeed. Yes. And it often comes with holidays. So I didn't have a shorter piece on Christmas, so I'm doing a, sh a short piece on snow. Now there's a lot of folks in here that are my age, so you might appreciate some of the references. Um, raise your hand if you like to sleigh ride. Good answer. You should still, regardless of age, you should like to sleigh ride. This piece is called The Coldest I've Ever Been. The coldest I've ever been was not December 27, 2009 when I watched my husband officiate the Music City Bowl. Sitting for three hours inside the Tennessee Titans Stadium in a wind chill of 17 degrees makes the body cold, to be sure, but I've been colder in the 70s. In the 70s, I liked to hear the WKEE DJ who lived inside my clock radio say, Cabell County, in the list of school cancellations. <laughs> I'd hit the off button and roll over and dream about, what was that oldest partridge boy's name? Not Danny, the other one. <coughs> 
The smell of Maxwell House would waft under my door and I'd know my daddy was up. I'd slide my feet into slippers, my arms into my robe, and join him in the kitchen. He'd look up from his dippy egg and grin. Going to sleigh ride? I'd smile back. Yep. I'd open the cabinet over the stove and survey the collection of cereals. Cheerios, frosted flakes, sugar pops. Usually I pick Cheerios. I'd put a teaspoon or two of sugar on them and a big pour of milk. Dad would push his chair back from the table and carry his dishes to the sink. He'd run water over his plate so the yolks wouldn't turn into superglue. Then he'd pat me on the back, always too hard. I'd urge to soften or avoid altogether the blows. He'd put his cheek next to mine, his Abe Lincoln beard scratchy. My nose would wrinkle with the combination of morning and Maxwell House breath. My mouth was full so I'd make the brush a brush a motion with my hand. He'd cup his, breathe into it, and sniff. My, uh, his eyebrows would go up. Oh, right. Before he left to walk to work, he'd come back in the kitchen and exhale on my face. <laughs> Colgate breath, minty fresh, much better. My mouth was still full, so I gave him a thumbs up. After I slurped my sugar and milk dregs, I put my bowl in the sink. Then I started collecting <coughs> socks, long johns, jeans, two pair. Turtleneck, sweatshirt, hat, scarf, gloves, baggies, and rubber bands. One for each foot. Baggies are key. If your feet are dry, you could stay out way longer. Wet cold is colder than dry cold. Next stop was the basement for boots and a coat. Always my brothers. My coat and boots would never fit over all my sleigh riding gear. I'd root through the shoe pile under the steps, looking for the scotch-guarded, stubby-toed hiking boots with the red laces. My older brother's Arctic parka was my number one choice for coats. The fur trim almost always kept the snow spray off my face. Now, into the garage. More choices. I'll take the silver disc and the newer flexible flyer. All set to the cemetery. No need to tell mom. It's where I always go when it snows. It was the best of snow days. It was the worst of snow days. The snow had a crisp like potato chips top. Like it had snowed, then drizzled, then froze. If I was super careful, I could walk across the top and not fall through. The trick was weight distribution. You had to center yourself over your feet. If you dug in a hill, crunch, you'd crash through. On a good day, I could get eight or six steps, six or eight steps without a breakthrough. Us neighborhood kids had anticipated this cold snap. We prepared for it too. After school the day before, some of us had tromped over and used a chubby stick to jam the water pump at the top of the hill where the road goes down to the giant open Bible made of granite. The day before, it had been almost 40. The water had gushed willingly. Today, it wasn't even 20. The water refused to flow. Instead, it looked like a solid white paper towel tube coming out of the forest green, cast iron, goosenecked faucet. The road reminded me of the powdered sugar glaze on my mom's Bacardi rum cake. Shiny, slick, speedy. I smiled and rubbed my gloved hands together. It's going to be so fast!
After the faucet inspection, I walked back up the hill to where I'd left the sleds. I picked up the reins of the flexible flyer. Sitting or on my belly? On my belly. I trusted my hands more than my feet when it came to steering. I pulled the sled three feet back from the edge so I could get settled before I, on your mark, get set, went. I eased my Michelin man self belly down onto the flyer slats. I tucked the reins under me so they wouldn't get caught beneath the runners. I put my hands at opposite ends of the guide bar. Before I geronimoed, I pulled my muffler up over my mouth and nose because I hate freezing cold snow powder in my face. Hate it. You know what? When you ride a roller coaster, you're scared when you're waiting in line. At least I am. Then you're anxious as a car climbs the first hill. That's, that's how I am. No turning back now. And then you're at the peak and your stomach jumps up to keep your sternum company. Then all H-E double toothpicks cuts loose. Speed, wind, adrenaline, bugs, fear, joy. It's over already? Let's do it again. Not this time. I hunched and scooted and jerked my way to the precipice. I paused to look at the gleaming ribbon of silver. I considered the way it dog-legged to the left halfway down. Wonder how the flyer will steer on ice. Cowabunga! I shouted to the edges of winter as I oofed myself from flat to steep. It happened so fast. I didn't even get to enjoy the stinging, alarming velocity before the pain the burning pain set in. The steering of the flyer on ice didn't happen. The ice flung me down the hill so fast that by the time I approached the bend and needed to steer, it was too late. The flyer slammed into the curb and stopped. I, however, kept going. Across the, crisp, across the top of the crispy, like the top of creme brulee, but cold, not hot, Snow. The parka's hood flew back. The scarf on my face abandoned ship. And the sandpaper rough ice crust razzed my face. Took off a layer of skin on my right cheek and jaw. I don't know how long I laid there. Motionless. Like one of those baby harp seals in the ad whose eyes say, Please don't let me after a while the burning on the right side of my face turned to stinging then it prickled then it itched isn't this what they say frostbite feels like and then people's fingers and toes fall off is my cheek going to fall off I lifted my face off the ice layer my eyes got big when I saw the pink print it left I rolled onto my back with a groan. My neck and shoulders ached from the flyer's violent kiss with the curb. I wish the snow was soft, like when it first falls and you run outside to do snow angels. I opened my eyes when I heard my stomach rumble. I was so cold. A jarring shiver started in my gut and shimmied up to my teeth, making them clack. Sounded like the Mexican hat dance. I squinted at the sky. What time is it? I shook my head to ease the crawling of my face skin, but it didn't help. I reached a glove up to scratch and felt a tearing. The fibers of my scarf had mated with the beginnings of the scabs on my face.
My cheek would not surrender the scarf without more pain, more blood. My breath caught. I sniffed. My lower lip trembled. I'm going to be ugly. The salt from the tears insulted my abrasions. It'll probably leave a scar. I've not been loved yet. And now I probably never will be. I'll have to become a nun like Sally Field or, or Maria in The Sound of Music. And the wimple will cover the awful scar. That is, if I don't freeze to death first. After all, this was the coldest I'd ever been. <laughs> Another round of applause for that. Oh, I'm going to introduce the second author tonight, Ted Webb. Uh, Ted is the co-founding member of Morgantown Poets, a monthly event serving the literary arts community in North Central Morgantown, or well, West Virginia. His poem Starbus was featured in Mountain Lion's Poetry on the Move program. Ted's writing has been published in Appalachian Sand and Gravel, West Virginia Words. Outstretch, Appalachian Crier, and Trillium, among other places. Ted helps organize writing workshops and literary events in the community and is involved in local literary groups. He's written two books of poetry, Vision and If Peace Were a Promise, which are available here after the reading. Um, please welcome Ted Webb. Hey. I've got a couple of props, okay? <laughs> yes, I'm Ted Webb, and um, I just want to thank Diane Tarantini so much for doing this reading with me. I'm just honored that you had the time to do it, and you know we could do this together and team up. Um, I also want to thank Jessica Murphy for uh, stepping in here uh, this week to host, and I, you know we we really appreciate your help. <coughs> To all the folks at Zen Clay, I don't think they're up here, but Corey Buzzo, uh, the manager, was just wonderful. Um, you know, he worked to set up the chairs and set up this great arrangement, and the whole staff was really great about giving us the space here tonight. So I just have a few pieces that I want to share with you. Um, Jessica mentioned the uh, poem Starbus that was on the Mountain Line uh, Poetry on the Move program. So. Um, you know, buses and poets go together in my mind. Um, a lot of times if you're a poet, you don't have a lot of cash and you don't always have a car. <laughs> so, you know, some years back I was in Eugene, Oregon, and I think some of you may have been to that great town. Um, so I was riding the bus there, and, um, you know, I biked for a year there. I loved it. Miss Eugene, that's such a great place. Bus system was great, and um, a lot of times I'd ride the bus to work. And one day I was on the bus, and it was a beautiful morning. The sun was like going through the windows of the bus, and I'm looking around the bus, and you know there were different people on the bus. There was an older lady, and um, there was a, a guy that had a shopping bag, a, a teenager. He had a skateboard, and um, so when poetry on the move came about here in Morgantown, those were all the things that I thought of. I thought about these experiences. And then um, I wanted to write a poem specifically for that program. 
And I made another connection about uh, something I'd read in a physics article about um, how we're made of stardust, star stuff. I think that's what Carl Sagan calls it. Um, the elements were created in the stars, and we have those inside of us. And it made me feel about how we're all connected. So holidays are coming up, and it's a good time to think about those connections that we all have. Um, and I, you know, I thought you know we're really all more similar than we are different. So this poem's titled Starbus. I'm bicycling. I'm walking. I'm using a cane. I'm using a wheelchair. Bus embraces us. Girl with water bottle. Man with newspaper. Boy with dark glasses. Woman with white hair. We journey together. Stardust. Uh, the second piece, this was written uh, last year. Billy Collins came to Fairmont. He's a pretty well-known poet nationally. And uh, I wasn't too familiar with his work at that time, but uh, some friends loved <laughs> Billy Collins, and they lent me some books that he had. So I was reading uh, a lot of Billy Collins at that time. And um, I was inspired by some of his poetry, and especially after seeing him in Fairmont. It was, I'll tell you, this was the largest poetry reading I've ever been to. I mean, they had to change the venue to the gym at FSU, and it was packed. It was, I don't know, there had to have been 200 people there or more, and it was amazing. And Billy was really down to earth and just a great reader. Um, but I remembered reading one of his poems called Dancing Toward Bethlehem, and um, it inspired me to write this poem. Um, so I, I titled this poem, Slow Dance Toward Knowing. We dance like newborn turtles, learning to balance our shells. We don't know this dance. No one taught us the steps. We take turns leading, while nature leads us in a waltz on the event horizon of affection. Okay. So if you notice, uh, these poems, they share some common threads, and um, not all my poems are so spiritually oriented, but um, I, chose, I tried to choose poems that I felt fit with the holiday themes, and you know, this, um, the ideas of giving, sharing, the connections that we all have. Um, this poem I've read a few times here at Morgantown, and it seemed to get really good response with the Morgantown Poets events, and I, I guess it, there's something in it um, that people like, but um, I titled this poem Prophecy. Um, it's maybe in the style of uh, Rumi or something, you know, if you're familiar with that, that kind of Hafiz. So I titled this Prophecy. Don't become your own self-fulfilling prophecy because you are the beloved foremost. You're connected to others. It's true, sometimes they don't see you. Remember, you don't always see them. The blind shouldn't accuse the blind of darkness 
or silence. Truth doesn't change, although it can't always be seen. Yet it's always your job to build bridges with blood-soaked nails. In spite of life, there's love. In spite of death, there's hope. What else? God is a butterfly on the river's edge on a never-ending journey to the other side. Okay, so next up I have a um, piece here that I've performed several times. And as we advertise, this is not a typical, um, I don't know, reading where I'm you know, just going to read. And um, This is more of a performance. And when I lived in Eugene, Oregon, and I lived in Fayetteville, North Carolina, um, there were a lot of literary artists, I say. I, I think they, they brought it to this level of performance. And to me, I've always been interested in that. I enjoy connecting with people. And um, you know, I've always been interested in theater. And so um, you, know, you go to a lot of these um, open mic readings. And you know, people would get up there, and they did spoken word poetry. They, they, they did. It's, you know, hip hop shares a lot of this. But it all started with spoken word. So, and this goes back to the history of the beginning of people literature you know it was all spoken it was all memorized so you know I got I got into that you know and um, anyway this poem is a very special spoken word piece that I wrote called drum circle and in North Carolina the town I lived in every Friday they did this great event um, and it was uh, actually it wasn't every Friday it was about once a month but it was kind of like um, the downtown arts walk that they do here, except they did it every single month, and all the businesses stayed open late. And um, there were artists, and they had performances downtown, and there was a lot of people on the sidewalk, like sidewalk musicians. There'd be people, you know, playing guitar on the streets, just wherever they could set up. And uh, there's also a lot of people that did um, tribal drums, a lot of drummers down there, and they'd set up these drum circles. Well, this particular night, it was in the summer, I went down and I always had my little notebook with me to write poetry and ideas down. And I went down there and I walked into this drum circle and there had to have been, I don't know, 20-some drummers. And when you walk into that large of a drum circle, you know, you, you feel this enormous beat. Uh, it's hard to describe unless you, you, you feel it inside you. And so... I looked around and I, started, I saw this, these girls dancing, um, they had skirts and they're just moving and dancing to this drum beat and you know, I saw this dog, this guy had a dog and this couple of kids and this, there was a lot of people gathered around the drum circle just watching and enjoying it and uh, I felt that beat and you know, I started to think, what if there was this beat that went throughout the whole world? And, uh, you know, it's a beat that we could all, like, close our eyes and we can feel it if we really listen. And so I started writing down this poem. The words just started coming to me. I started writing them down right there. And uh, it wasn't exactly my voice. You know, when you do um, a spoken word or a performance piece, um, a lot of times you do, a, you're a character. You know, you, 
you're, not all the poems are me exactly. They're a voice, or it comes to you. You know, you may be that character at that moment. Um, so this, this poem's called Drum Circle, and you may recognize it's a different character. So I'll put on my hat. Drum Circle. Friday night. Drum Circle. I'm talking about this beat that turns the whole planet upside down. My friends, don't you feel the music turning your feet up over your heads? Beat them drums, beat them drums, faster and faster. Up over the brick sidewalk, little boy, with your Mohawk dreads and your yellow shirt. If you was older, you might be the man boy, all dressed up in your short hair and your glasses and your suit, your tie. But I'd be willing to bet you'd still be beating them drums. Beat them drums, beat them drums. Faster and faster. Watch the angels come down and sing woo-hoo. Them feminist angels be ballet dancing in the circle of God's music. And her their camouflage skirt. And her their jangling silver belt. And her there swishing her swishing skirt. Swishing with both her hands. Oh, angels, raise your hands. Oh, angels, bare your feet. Oh, angels, shake them hips. Snick up them arms. Shake your long, long hair. Raise your hands to the sky. Sing praises from where you came. Touch heaven. Touch God's hot melting face touch mercy open the box of charity kick them bare feet wiggle them bare painted toes look to the circle of children beat them drums beat them drums faster and faster hug the children pet the spotted dog him their tongue wagon Bushy white tail. He ain't no puppy with him goof, goof, goofy, fluffy ears. Him eyes checking out street circus, car and folk. He dog look like he gonna tell a joke. <laughs> he done told me a little secret about why we all here. It was him dog joke. At least he don't smoke. That boy's cigarette. That dog's smarter than humans. That's right. He hear a thousand voices, all crystal and crying, like the river's waters. He hear all growling bellies, all the starving. Beat them drums, beat them drums. Faster and faster. And watch the angels fly higher and higher. 
like a kid's red balloon lost to the cloudless star-boiled sky. So far, so far away, I can't see them no more. So far, so far away, I can't hear them no more. No more laughing, no more singing, no more dancing, no more dreaming. And I'd be crying for no good reason but to be crying like the town's crier. They ain't gonna wake me up cause I'm starved, I'm skinny, I'm open, I'm sinning, every day lying, every day sinning, ain't never winning. But the old woman, white hair, keep on inviting me to church, her village she call it they got them singles there and the <laughs> Sunday school what make her think I'd be a single slice of bread there's no way I am I'll be eaten by the whole world cause I'm whole wheat and married to the whole sad world Beat them drums, beat them drums, faster and faster. Beat them drums, beat them drums, all the way from Africa, from Europe, from North America, from South America, from Asia, from Australia, to Antarctica, where all the frozen heartfelt Poets be the mythical dreamers and the lost children singing the praises. Okay. Okay, I just have a couple more pieces here. Um, and so. I'll share with you another poem here from my other book. Um, this was my first one called Vision. And uh, this poem here um, goes back to uh, actually when I was in high school, believe it or not. Um, it's called The Jacket. And my granddad was in World War II, and he gave me his old army jacket I used to wear it around, and it got all frayed and worn out and everything. And... Um, I remember even as a younger person thinking about what's this kind of mean, um, what's this jacket mean, you know, what's the meaning of it? And, uh, you know, I, I was familiar with some of the things my granddad had gone through um, during the 1930s and 1940s. Um, so, you know, I don't know where this poem came from. It's another one of these that just came to me, but uh, I think it holds up, you know. It's called The Jacket. This jacket is mine, it's not hard to find. An old green fatigue, it's one of a kind. It represents no emblem, it stands for no creed. It's not associated with riches or greed. My jacket is found on the backs of the poor. It's also been worn by soldiers in war. It's found in trenches splattered by mud. It's seen on bodies covered with blood. It's worn by the brave, it's shown with the bold, 
It's donned by the homeless to keep them from cold. It's worn by sinners and it clothes the saved. It's seen with the poet. It's worn by the slave. My jacket protects me from wind and from rain. It shields me from burdens. It keeps me from pain. I've walked with my jacket for thousands of miles. People stare at me strangely because it's not in style. It has no logo. It depicts no team. All that it stands for is a hope and a dream. I dream for the world to be a better place where people can live no matter what race. I hope every child has something to eat and everyone's warm because they don't live on the street. Sometimes my jacket on me isn't seen, but I still have it on if you know what I mean. When I wear my jacket, I don't have to hide. It clothes me with love. I wear it with pride. If someone had a need, I'd certainly care. I'd gladly take off my jacket and give them to wear. So. So that fits in with the holidays, right? <laughs> okay. Season of giving. Last poem. Have you ever... Uh, I know there's other artists here and other writers, and maybe you've created an artwork, written a song, uh, written a poem that you um, did just for just to cheer yourself up, you know? You, you kind of did it for yourself to feel good. And uh, I do that from time to time, you know, like that one happiness I read a little bit ago. Uh, so this is one of those, and uh, it's a new one. I think I did this this summer, so it doesn't have a title, but you'll get it. Dance the dance I saw you dancing. Laugh the laugh I saw you laughing. Hold small hands you hold so dear. And never worry, never fear. Love loves you beyond the dreams of time, like the mountains we all must surely climb. Climb, climb far to the ends of the earth with friends who share your infinite worth. I hope you're always loving, dreaming, fighting, searching, sharing, reaching to dreams you love and love you fair, hope is always standing there. Thanks again, everyone, for joining us. I'd like to thank Ted Webb in particular for recording this event and sending it in to us. If you have a recorded live literary event of your own or know of one coming up that you can record, we invite you to do so and send it in to us for possible use on the podcast. Our email address is wvwpodcast at gmail.com. We have links to Diane Tarantini's blog, Caught Butterflies, as well as to the web pages for Ted Webb and Morgantown Poets at our website, podcast.wvwriters.org. Next time on the podcast, we'll be speaking with West Virginia Writers President Kat Pleska and our first Vice President Teresa Newsom about the 2011 West Virginia Writers Annual Writing Contest that's just days away from accepting entries. Teresa is our contest coordinator this year for both the Adult Contest and the New Mountain Voices Student Contest. So, if you have any questions about the contest itself, we'll likely cover the answers in our next episode. Our opening voiceover was provided by Marcus Vowell. 
Our show's theme music is used with permission by its composer, Pops Walker, whose albums can be found at cdbaby.com. This podcast is a production of Mr. Herman's Production Company Limited and was assembled in the Mr. Herman Studios atop a hill in Mercer County.